if you've been with us since the beginning of the year, we've been walking our way through the the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, kind of chronologically looking at the life of Jesus. And so last week we came to almost a stopping point is we kind of came right up to the end of the second year of Jesus's ministry. And what we've been saying is that you get to the third year and everything kind of starts to turn and he starts to face a lot of opposition. And so we're going to continue to work our way through the Gospels, but we're going to put that on pause. And I'm going to come back to that actually in January at the beginning of the year. But let me tell you why we're going to do that. The next three weeks, including this week, we're going to spend some time on some great big doctrinal truths that I think are really important. And then we'll have a short series for Advent like we do each year. And so we're going to do some studies in the book of Hebrews of how Jesus is better than everything as we move up towards Christmas. And so we'll start that right after Thanksgiving. But today and then the next two weeks, what we're going to do is and and what prompted this is to hit on a couple really big, important truths. And the reason that I decided that I wanted to do this right now and kind of coming to this is uh, every two years, Ligonier Ministry, it's a ministry out of Florida that that R.C. Sproul helped start many, many years ago. They do um, some polls on what people in America believe. Right. And so what we believe in the church uh, about just basic doctrines of the Bible. And they put out their findings and they kind of tell where we are. And every two years they do this and I read through them and every two years I go, oh, this is not good. It's really discouraging, to be honest, when you read through and the things that they say and the ways that we're holding and missing some really big important things about what God says about who he is and the way he's revealed himself and what it looks like. And they're so important that I want us to stop and kind of focus on a few of them the next few weeks. And so today, we're going to start the first of that. And what we're going to do is I want us to talk about the reliability of the Bible, the veracity of Scripture. And the reason for that is I'm going to read you these three statements that they had in this poll. And I wanted to just give you a little bit of data points to think about this with me. And then we'll talk about this together. But in this, the way they do this poll is they give these statements and then it's kind of agree or disagree. And agree or disagree or unsure, I think, is the categories. But agree or disagree is where most of them fall. And so three statements they make, and I want to read them to you. The first one is, The Bible, like all sacred writings, contain helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. And of those that claim to be Christians that are followers of Jesus, 59% affirm that statement. 59%. The second one is, The Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. 56% disagree with that statement. So those that claim to be Christians, 56% say that's not true. And then the last one was modern science disproves the Bible. And so science is is shown that the Bible's false in a bunch of different areas. 52% agree with that statement. And so as I read those three, as it pertains to God's word, which we're going to talk about the reliability of scripture today, I would summarize that in saying 50%, 50 plus percent, of those that claim to be Christians have real issues with the reliability of Scripture. That can we trust it or not? And a bunch of people are saying, well, no. I mean, it's myths that have lots of errors and science has proved it wrong and that's the way we should look at it. And that's overwhelmingly over 50% of people who claim to be Christians that that's where they are. And so I want us just to think about the reliability of Scripture together today because this is a really important area. And so we'll talk about why, but this is the way I want us to think about this. First, I want us just to consider uh, why this problem, right? Why the problem that we have here uh, that so many people, over 50% feel that way. Secondly, I want us to think about the implications that come with that. You might say, okay, well, maybe that's true, or maybe some of that's not quite right, or I'm, I'm not exactly sure where I fall on that, but what's the big deal? So I want us to think about the implications. 
not only why that's the case, but the implications. And then lastly, kind of the second half of the sermon, I want to just give you some big, huge kind of headers, big ideas to help hopefully encourage you in the reliability of the Bible. And I want us to leave here having seen that clearly, what it does say and what scripture is and how we can trust it. And so let's just start with why this problem and the implications of it. And so admittedly here, there's a whole lot of reasons that we could point to on why that's the case, a whole host of them. And so I'm going to just give you a couple. I'm leaving out a whole bunch of things, but I think these are important. And so I'm going to kind of narrow this down to a couple things. And the first thing that I would say to you, why I think this is partly the issue is we have an incredibly strong naturalistic bias in our culture today. I want you to think with me about that for a second. If you're not sure what I mean when I say that, that we have a naturalistic bias. What we mean when we say that is that the world, the physical world, the things that we can touch and see and feel is all there is. That that's all there is to the entirety of everything that we know and we can see. And anything else is just kind of hokey and you're guessing and there's no proof of that and that type of thing. And that's the thing that uh, that is a bias that we have in our culture. And And it's said and it's put forward a lot. People talk that way. But here's the thing I want you to consider for just a second. That's actually... Uh, what people, let me back up. The way people will often say that is, well, I'm scientific and I believe in science and I only believe in science. And so I can only believe in those things that I can feel and see and touch. And so I can't believe in things that are outside of that. But I want you to stop and think about this for just a second, because it's really important that we see this. Sometimes when something gets repeated so many times, it just becomes like, oh yeah, that's common sense. Okay. And that's the way our culture is, is it comes around things like this. But the truth is, when you start to talk that way, I believe only in science, science only deals with physical reality, right? It's looking at things that you can see, feel, and touch, and then testing hypotheses based on those things. And so when someone says that's all there is, that's not a scientific statement. They've crossed over into philosophy. They're no longer doing science. But what you'll hear a lot of times is, but I only believe in science, and that's it. But then they make a philosophical statement It's no longer science anymore. And sometimes we miss that. It's really obvious, but we miss it a lot of times. And so what we start to say is people will just kind of repeat that and say things like, um, there can't be any supernatural cause for any natural phenomenon. So what we see has to have a natural explanation. There can't be anything supernatural. That is not a scientific statement. It's a philosophical statement. And that's okay if that's your philosophy of life and what you believe, but it is a belief And it's a faith-based statement. But we say it so often that we have this bias that is towards the naturalistic assumptions. And we say it so often. I I love, um, there's a guy named Alvin Plantigo that's a great philosopher. And he has a great quote about this as you start to think about that. He says, the very practice of science requires that one reject the idea of God raising someone from the dead. So someone who has a naturalistic assumption, that's the way they are. It requires because there has to be a physical uh, reason for this. And so he says, if you hold to that, it's like saying there has to be, uh, there cannot be God, there cannot be resurrection, there cannot be so many of the things that the Bible tells us. And then he says, this argument is like the drunk who insists on looking for his lost keys only under the street light on the grounds that the light is better there. And he says, in fact, it would go the drunk one better. It would in it would insist that because the keys would be hard to find in the dark, they must be under the light. And so if you think about what he's saying, he's saying it's a philosophical statement that you're now applying to everything and it's not even scientific. 
But we've so heard that and we've so been told that and it's such a basic assumption in our society that we operate that way. And so I think that's part of it. We have a naturalistic bias that permeates pretty much everything in our society today. But then the second reason that kind of grows out of that, because that's the case, we take the Bible and we hold it under that lens and we go, we have to get rid of everything that's supernatural. We have to get rid of all this other stuff. And then we have to have an explanation that's naturalistic, that's scientific. We have to be able to prove these things or it can't be true. And so we end up with statements like, well, science has disproved the Bible. And people go, yeah, of course, for sure. Because they have a naturalistic bias that there can't be anything supernatural. Or we start to say those kind of things over and over. And then we, then we come up with a, a version of how we got the Bible. And so you can go to, uh, you can turn on the TV and watch the History Channel. And uh, every so often they'll have uh, how the Bible was formed. And if you watch it on the History Channel, you'll get kind of a, a certain uh, version of events. And it'll go something like, well, the Bible was kind of cobbled together over a really long period of time. It grew out of tradition that was oral in nature. And it was embellished and it was... Uh, exaggerated and and over time these stories kind of came together and they got written down way way after the fact and there's no reason to ever think that it's historically accurate and it's something to that effect and it's based on this naturalistic assumption and you'll hear this over and over and over again told in those ways and so what ends up happening is a lot of times christians almost concede to this narrative well, that's what our culture says, and that's what's true, and that's the way it works. And so we just kind of go along with that. Like, yeah, okay, well, maybe that's the case. Maybe there are some errors, and maybe it's just ancient things, and there's some good things there, but we can't know it's true. And so that ends up being the way that people talk about it. And it becomes the way that we kind of understand it. And so as a believer, you may even sit here today and go, well, I believe that the Bible is God's Word. And I believe it is true, and it is inspired. And there aren't errors in it. But then you hear those kind of things or you watch that thing on the History Channel and you go, but I don't know how to answer that. You ever felt that way? You hear those things and man, it's really smart people and they're saying those things and you're thinking, man, I'm not really sure how to answer that. And what ends up happening is you go, well, I have this belief and this conviction, but it's very vague to me how we actually got the Bible. You ever feel that way? J.P. Moreland, great Christian philosopher, uh, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, he's a Christian apologist for many years. He's written a lot of great books. But I love this quote that he has. And I'm going to paraphrase it. But he says basically that we can't believe anything with real conviction, that which is vague in our minds. That we struggle to hold tightly to something when it's real vague. We don't have a clear understanding. And I think when I read this, these statistics about the way people think about the Bible, that it's because it's very vague in our minds how we got it. It's kind of like, I'm not exactly sure. And so, yeah, maybe science has proved it wrong. And maybe there are errors. And maybe it doesn't really hold together. And maybe it doesn't stand up under scrutiny. And it's because our culture says that so often and we don't really know. And so what I want us to do is really think about how we have the Bible and why we can trust it. And so maybe you say to me, before we get to that, maybe you say, well, okay, that's fine. And I understand your point here. But why is it that big of a deal? I think it is a big deal. I think it's a very big deal when you read those statistics. And I want to explain to you why, just a couple of implications of why it's such a big deal. And so look at our text here with me that we just had read to us from 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, a young pastor, and he's explaining these things and encouraging him. And look at what he says in chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16. 
He says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned, what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, or for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so Paul writes to Timothy and he's encouraging him and he's telling him that God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. And as you read them and as you come to them, as you study them, they are able to make you wise for salvation, to understand how you are to be right with the God of the universe who has revealed himself to us. And he says it's breathed out by God. God is the one who has revealed himself to us and he spoke through men and he breathed out and he inspired it that we can know what he's like and know who he is and so hold fast to this. And then he's going to go on to say, so preach the word and encourage people and teach and correct and rebuke and do that because this is God's word. And what you have in scripture, if we claim to be Christians, we claim to be followers of Jesus. Paul is saying these things because he is following Jesus. Jesus said these things. Jesus said over and over that God has revealed himself to us and that he has shown us. You see it all the way through scripture. Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Right? And then he tells his disciples, I'm going to bring these things to mind and you're going to write them down and you're going to have them. And you go and you tell people and you let this stand over you. You see, in Jesus' temptation early in the Gospels, we looked at this several months back, and as he's tempted with the things that are before him, and he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There you go back to Isaiah. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And God has revealed himself and he has said this over and over that when I say something, it is eternal and it is true and it is good and it's right and you hold fast to what I'm telling you. And God has gone to great lengths to reveal himself to us. And when we say, yes, he's done that, but there's errors and who can know and we're not sure and we don't have it, we cut our legs out from under us before we ever begin. God tells us that his word stands over us. And if we go, yeah, but I'm not sure. And maybe there's errors and there's maybe that. And then suddenly we start to whittle away. And suddenly we're left with nothing. And so it's so very important of what God has told us from the very beginning that he has revealed himself to us. But the second thing as far as implications, look at what he says at the beginning of chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And I want you to think about the connection there. When we start to say that the Bible's full of errors and we can't trust it and who knows and science proved it's wrong and all these things that go down the line. Suddenly, instead of the Bible standing over us and this is God's word and his revelation to us, we begin to pick and choose. 
We go, there's errors. God doesn't know what it looks. God doesn't understand what it's like to live in 2022. And I think this is probably off. And they probably got that wrong. And that's maybe not right. And suddenly we start to whittle away. In the sinfulness of our own sin nature, the sinfulness of our culture, we start to hear things and we go, well, that makes sense to me. Yeah. And we all sit around, pat each other on the back and go, yeah, God probably didn't mean that. There's errors anyway. And so what ends up happening is we start to pick and choose. And we start to whittle away at the things that God tells us. And we start to wander off. And suddenly we can do that. And we go, well, that's, that's antiquated. That's regressive. And God didn't mean that. And he didn't mean this. And in the sinfulness of our heart, that's the heart of sin. Ignoring God and the world he created. I don't need you to tell me, God, I got this. And we can even kind of put it in terms of like, I'm holding to the Bible and I believe the Bible. I just think there's an error in this area. And you know what happens? The place that you see the area, the errors are the areas of your heart where you don't want to obey. Suddenly God looks just like you. Suddenly the things that are errors are all the things that you thought were kind of off anyway. And you know what ends up happening is instead of having a relationship with the living God of the universe, you now have a Stepford God. You know what I mean when I say that? You ever heard the story, the Stepford wives? A bunch of guys in Connecticut lobotomize their wives and turn them into robots that they just say yes to everything. Have you ever read that book or watched the terrible movie that they made out of it? But in it, what happens is they just say yes, dear, to everything. And what becomes real clear as you watch it is that's not a relationship. If no one can ever cross your will, right? And so if we have a relationship with the living God of the universe who is holy and righteous and pure in every way, there's going to be times that he says things that cross my will. And if I pick and choose, then suddenly that goes away and suddenly God looks just like me. And so it is so very important that we hold fast to God's word. So how do we answer that? If it's hard to hold with conviction that which is vague in your mind, how do we get some clarity on that? And so I just want to offer a few things that I, help, that I hope helps kind of do that for you. Make it a little more clear. And so if you look here again, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we often go to this verse when we talk about the Bible. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so when we talk about the Bible, oftentimes people will go to Second Timothy chapter 3, and they'll go, it says right there, all scripture is breathed out by God. So the Bible is God's word, and it tells you right there it's God's word. And I remember as a kid, right, you go to church and they tell you that, you hear that, like, yeah, the Bible's God's word because the Bible says it's God's word. You go, but isn't that kind of like a circle? The Bible says it, so then it's true. So the Bible says, and you go, wait a second. It's okay to say that. It's okay to ask that question and go, wait a second. The Bible's saying it's God's word. That's great. But is that really any proof? Is that the only reason that we hold that this is God's word? And the answer is no, that's not the only reason. I believe what it says here. I believe that it is breathed out by God, that it is inspired, that it is for teaching and correcting, 
for showing us what it looks like to love God and to love others, to show us how we have a relationship with the living God of the universe. But there's a lot of things that we can point to that give us great confidence in this book that we hold in our hands. And so I just want to share a couple of things with you to think about. The first one, and I'll be brief, and admittedly, this is very broad strokes, but it's still true. The Bible, as you hold it, that you have in your hands today, is the most remarkable book ever written, bar none. Indisputably so. What you have in your hands was written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors on three different continents from all different walks of life, many of which never met the other. But together it tells this beautiful, cohesive story of how God created all things and loves you and has sought after you. And he has done it in this most beautiful way that we can't even fully fathom. And somehow he has brought this to us and given it to us that tells us this story. And it has changed more lives than any other piece of literature in the history of the world. And it's not even close. And it's still happening today. People pick up this book and begin to read it and their lives are changed. I know that's pretty broad. But I'm going to tell you, you can't argue against that. There is a mountain of evidence that that is true. That this book has changed more people than any other book ever written. And it's not even close. It's an amazing document that you hold in your hands. And so just start there. This is the most remarkable book ever. But now I want to narrow my focus for just a second. And I'll explain why at the end. I'm going to focus mostly on the New Testament. And there's a reason why I want to do this, but we'll come to the end and bring all this together, I think. But as we think about the New Testament, one of the objections people say is, well, it was written down long after, came from oral history, and they told these stories, and they retold them, they mythologized them, they talked about them, all these different... We can't even be sure that what we have written down is what they wrote. It was so long ago. How can we even be sure? And so the first thing that I want to say to you is that we can trust that what they wrote down in the first century, the New Testament, is what you hold in your hands today. And you go, okay. Maybe you say, I believe that. And if somebody pressed you on why, you would have a hard time explaining why. And that's okay. If you sit here and you go, well, that's kind of vague in my mind. I do believe that, but it's hard to hold it with real conviction because I don't know. And so I want to give you just a couple of things to consider. Do you know what a manuscript is? Manuscript, in terms of ancient doctrine, documents, ancient literature, are handwritten copies of that document, right? So throughout the history of the world, we have lots of manuscripts of a lot of different ancient documents that we can go back and we can find and we can point to. Uh, for Aristotle, Aristotle's writings, there's five manuscripts that we have, handwritten copies. The earliest that we have of Aristotle's writings is 1,200 years after he wrote. And we read that and we put those together and we can look at them and we can go, yes, we believe that Aristotle wrote this and what we know from history and here's the copies we have. Same is true for Caesar. We have 10 copies with the earliest being a thousand years after he wrote. And people go, yeah, that's Caesar's writing. Historians don't argue that we can trust that that's what he wrote and his ideas and what he was thinking. 
You know, when we come to the New Testament, what you hold in your hands, the Bible that we have, you know that we have 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. Fragments or pieces, but manuscripts of the New Testament. 25,000. Not 10, not 5, not 25, but 25,000. The oldest being, we have a fragment of the Gospel of John that dates to 120 A.D. and they found it in Egypt. That means it was written, right? That means the, the manuscript we have is about 30 to 40 years after he wrote it. It's that soon, right? So Aristotle, a thousand years. Caesar, 1,200 years after. The Bible we have within 30 to 40 years. And so you start to look at all the manuscripts that we have. The partials and all the pieces and you put them together. And by 200 A.D., we have almost the entirety of the New Testament being able to be pieced together from those manuscripts that are that old. By 325 A.D., we have the entirety of the Bible. We have manuscripts and we can follow them and we can trace them back. And so what we have, when you cross-reference those things and you look at them together and you compare and you put them together, what you hold in your hands is 99.5% pure that is the exact thing that they wrote down. And the evidence is overwhelmingly that that is true. Now, that does mean that 0.5% is where there's some questions about, right? So one half of 1% of the New Testament, we have a few questions about. You know what's amazing about that? Is we still can piece it together from what we have with pretty good degree of certainty. But in that half percent, you know that there's no doctrine in the New Testament that is changed by that half percent. There's nothing that comes into question about who Jesus is or his divinity or his rising again or any of the things that we hold as the most important. And I read that and I hear there's 25,000 and I say, praise God that he has kept this book for us, that we could know exactly what the authors wrote down. And it's, you don't have to take that on faith. We can prove that by the overwhelming uh, riches of manuscripts that we have and so you can trust that what you have in your hands is what they wrote down now you say okay that's helpful but what about what they wrote down how do we know that they didn't embellish and edit and change it how do we know that they didn't take the stories of jesus and make them much more fantastical and oh we'll make them walk on water and we'll make them do this and how did they how do we know he said, well, it's what they wrote down, but what they wrote down, we don't know that that's really what happened. And so what do we do with that? It's a fair objection. But I want to narrow the focus for just a second on the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have this fragment of the Gospel of John that was found in 120 AD in Egypt. And so we can work back and they establish that it had to have been written by no later than 90 AD for it to have been copied enough times to make its way to Egypt. Right? So follow that logic. So 90 AD, we know uh, Matthew and Luke wrote before John, and we know Mark wrote before Matthew and Luke, and so we can work backwards. And so what we have is that Mark most likely wrote 50 to 60 AD, somewhere in there. Matthew and Luke, 60 to 70, maybe 75, somewhere in there. And so these were all written down by eyewitnesses in the first century that were there. So what we have in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we have in the New Testament is people that were actually there that saw what happened. Now, again, you can say, well, so what? They could have lied. They could have told different things. They could have embellished. 
But there's this remarkable thing when you start to read through the Gospels. And I've tried to point this out as we've been going through looking at the life of Jesus. Is that there's ancient footnotes in the text. The writers actually point things out to you. Right? We know it's an eyewitness account because of the details that were there. Because of the things they're telling us. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, so I won't go into detail here. But we know it's eyewitness accounts because realistic fiction wouldn't be invented for another 1,500 years. Right? We could read it today and go, well, the details, that doesn't prove anything. They could have just been really smart in the way that they're telling the story. And it's like nobody had come up with that. And nobody would for another 1,500 years. And so when there's details like that, it's because it's an eyewitness account of someone recounting what they saw. And that's all the way through the Gospels, right? Like Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat with his head on a cushion. At the end of John's Gospel, and Jesus said, take the nets and put them on the other side and draw the fish out. And it says, and they caught 153 fish. They weren't making up details. They weren't inventing a whole new genre of literature. They were telling you what they saw. But then as they wrote it down and it started to be disseminated, it was still within the first century when all these people are still alive. And if you read in the Gospels, like Mark's Gospel in chapter 15, Jesus is on the way to the crucifixion. And he's carrying his cross and he's been beaten so badly that he can barely get there. And they grab a guy out of the crowd named Simon of Cyrene and they tell him to carry his cross. Right? It says this. And you can go read it. It's in Mark chapter 15. It says they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was in from the country to carry his cross. And then it says he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why did Mark say that? It's because Alexander and Rufus are still around. They're still living at the time. And what he's saying is, Simon, who's Alexander and Rufus, you know their dad's the one that carried the cross. Go ask them. Go check what I'm telling you. If they embellished and they made up all these things, but people are still alive that were there, they go, that's not what happened. But the gospel spread, spread like wildfire. Because it was true, because it actually happened, and they were writing down what they saw. And so what you have in the Scripture is what you hold in your hand is what they wrote down. And what they wrote down were eyewitness accounts in which they supply footnotes for you to go check. And so that idea that it could be embellished and made fantastical and all those things, not when the eyewitnesses are still living. Not when they're still there. And so what you have in front of you is eyewitnesses that wrote down what they saw as accurate as they possibly could. And that it's been copied and kept for us and that we can trust that what we hold in our hands is what they wrote down. Now, all that to say, you say, okay, so it's what they wrote down, it's from eyewitnesses, but they say Jesus raised from the dead. Say Jesus was crucified and he raised from the dead. That's pretty fantastical. We know, right, the modern mind would say, we know from science that couldn't have happened. We know. Nobody raises from the dead, right? Again, that's the naturalistic bias. Scientific thinking. We can't test that. There's no way. That can't happen. And so we say that. We say, that's not true. It has to have been made it up. And so there's a whole lot of things to try to to try to answer why this group of people overnight went from not believing in resurrection to believing in resurrection. Now bear with me for just a second because this is really important. Oftentimes we read back into it and we go, well, they believed in resurrection because they were simple-minded people. 
They were ancient people, and they don't know what we know about science. And so if somebody told them someone was raised from the dead, they were more likely to believe it than we are. That's what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We're smarter because today and what we know, and we know a lot more than they know, and so we're smarter than them. And so that's oftentimes what people do, and people will tell you that. And they'll say, well, they embellished, or they were all hallucinating, or they didn't know how to deal with the crushing defeat of Jesus being killed, so they made up these things. Years ago, I read a book. Uh, Someone had had, uh, recommended it to me. It's called The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. And I'll recommend it to you if if you dare. It's 900 pages. (laughs) It's like... And what he does in this book is he goes and he proves to you from history what people in the first century believed about resurrection. And I say he proves to you because he goes and takes every single writing from antiquity before the time of Jesus and after and all through that. And he quotes every one of them. A lot of quotes, a lot of reading. And what he gets to is he summarizes and he says in the first century, no one believed in resurrection. He said, Jews believe that there'd be a resurrection at the end of time, that, that God will set all things right, and there's going to be one resurrection at the end of time where there's judgment, but never any thought of there being a resurrection in the middle of history. The Greeks and their philosophy believed that this earthly world and our physical beings were bad. And so for someone to say to them there was a resurrection, they'd go, well, that's repulsive. When you die, you get to get away from the physical nature of your body. Why would anyone ever want to come back to that? And so what N.T. Wright does is he takes in this document, in this huge work, and he shows you there's no reason for anyone to be susceptible to a lie about resurrection in their time, just like it would be hard today. right? Just as someone said to you today that there's been someone who raised from the dead, you'd be like, yeah, right. Show me the video. Right. Show me the proof because of the way we think today. It was the same in Jesus's day, just for different reasons. And so what happens, though, is overnight, a whole group of people that has no reason to believe in resurrection at all suddenly begins to believe in resurrection. And not only believe in resurrection, but gives their lives to go across the face of the earth to explain to people that this man, Jesus, has been resurrected. To the point that they would be willing to be killed and beaten and tortured. And they go, no, 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 this is true. And you have to see it. It's the most important thing in the history of the world. And it happened overnight. And we have no explanation why. Unless Jesus was raised from the dead, unless God came down to do for us what we could never ever do for ourselves, and he loves us so much that he was willing to lay down his life that we could be reconciled to him. And what you hold in your hands is exactly what they saw and what they wrote down and what they witnessed. They said, go tell everybody. And you can struggle with that. But I would just say to you, if you're here today, and I'll end here, if you're skeptical and you struggle with that, you go, I don't know. There's a lot of things that don't add up and I'm not sure. This one man in the Middle East 2,000 years ago has completely changed the world. He's turned it upside down. 
And all these people changed in what they thought and what they believed overnight. And they went from seeing him as a man to worshiping him as God. There's indisputable proof of that change happening. And so I would just say to you, how do you account for that? What do you make of that? It's not something that you just have to take on faith without any reason. There's a whole lot of things that you have to answer for that hold this together. And so I would just encourage you to take them and look at them and really wrestle with them. Come to God's word with an open mind that maybe, just maybe, God has revealed himself in this way. But if you're here and you're a believer and you know Jesus and you believe that God's revealed himself to you, please hear this. All scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. God has revealed himself to us. He has given us his word and he has kept it and he has protected it. He has spoken to us. When you open this, you are hearing from the very God of the universe as if he's speaking to you today because he is. This is his word and he's given it to us that we can know him. Let us treat it accordingly. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of what you've done for us. We thank you that you have preserved your word. You have spoken to us. That you love us so much that you have come and revealed yourself to us. Not only revealed yourself to us, but you've come and done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so I pray that we would see that afresh today. That you, the creator God of the universe that holds all things together by the word of your power, has revealed yourself to us that we can know you. I pray that we would let your word stand over us in every area of our lives. When we struggle with things that we see, when we struggle with what our culture says, that we would care more what you say than anything else. That we would seek to be obedient in every area, following you in all ways. We pray that we would always be people that are coming under the authority of your word. And we pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.